reading from the Psalm 25. Teach me your paths. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O God, my soul, and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Okay, well, if you'd like to have that passage open in front of you as we look at it together, let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord God, we thank you for the wonderful a picture of your character that we have just heard in that psalm and we pray that as we come to study it now and reflect on it further uh, that your spirit would lift our eyes to you uh, that you would uh, strengthen us and refresh us and and uh, remind us today of your grace and your goodness uh, and your steadfast love and your faithfulness and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, Anxiety, Depression, and the Christian Life, the 16th century pastor Richard Baxter, he identifies the need for what he describes as the mirth of good Christian friendship as a crucial tool in addressing the inner turmoil of anxiety and depression. Community and friendship. 
It's something that we have been starved of these past two years. And it's no wonder that with that enforced distance and isolation, many have struggled with their mental health. Psalm 25 is all about what it means to know God as a friend, to walk with him closely, to know him personally. And if ever there was a time to experience intimacy with God, then surely it's now, isn't it? Perhaps you have had your own experience of isolation and loneliness over these past two years. Well, Psalm 25 was written by someone who knew what it was to feel lonely. At one point in the psalm, he cries out to God in in verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. It's quite a cry, isn't it? Maybe you can relate to that kind of cry in your own life, in your own experience at some point. Maybe you've had that that feeling of trouble and distress coming at you from all angles. Times of isolation are times when problems can become enlarged, where guilt uh, for past sins can weigh heavy upon us and God can feel distant. And that was certainly the case for the psalmist. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that situation? How should we respond when God seems distant and our troubles seem overwhelming? Well, the answer is there at the very beginning of this psalm. It's there in verse 1. The psalmist says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. One of the first things that strikes you about this psalm is the fervency of the psalmist. This was written by someone who knew what it was to walk closely with God, who'd experienced deep intimacy with God and longed to know that closeness again. In the Bible, the author of the psalm, King David, is described as a man after God's own heart. David knew God. He knew what it was to enjoy a deep personal relationship with him. Verse 1 is the first of 10 occasions in this psalm where the psalmist addresses God as Lord. Uh, And if you've been around this church for any length of time, you'll know that, that whenever we see Lord in block capitals in the Bible, that is a reference to God's personal name, his covenant name, Yahweh. It was the name that, that was used by God's chosen people, the, the people of Israel. It was his, his personal name reserved for those who enjoyed a special relationship with him. And whenever we see it used in the Bible, it speaks of a God who can be known, uh, of a God who can be enjoyed by his people. In the depths of his loneliness, in the depths of his affliction, David wasn't without hope. He knew where relief lay. He didn't look to himself. He didn't look to all the kinds of things that a powerful king might look to, to his status, to his wealth, to to all the places that he could find pleasure. No, he lifted up his soul to his Lord. In the midst of his troubles, he directed his whole being to God. 
And it's as he does that that he's reminded of God's character. Now, we live in a society that is used to instant gratification with minimal effort. Um, I may have mentioned this before, but we have a Chinese takeaway, the best Chinese takeaway in Edinburgh, on the other side of our street. Um, and uh, I've been known to, to make orders from that place from time to time. And whenever I phone uh, and I place my order, they always tell me it will be ready in 10 minutes. Uh, but the other day when I phoned, uh, I was a new person on the phone, and she told me it was going to be ready between 5 and 10 minutes. Uh, so I left it until minute six, and then I crossed the road, and it was already waiting for me. Uh, but you don't even need to leave your front door uh, anymore, do you? You can just go on the Deliveroo app, uh, tap in what you want, and then watch that little bicycle track its way to your house. Minimal effort with quick results. That's what it's all about, even if the, the guy who's having to cycle the bike through the wind and the rain may not agree. And sometimes we can try and approach time with God a bit like that, with, with an expectation that a, a quick skim through a Bible passage will, will instantly bring the intimacy that we desire. But it takes time to cultivate a meaningful relationship, often one of the reasons for spiritual dryness and that sense of disconnection from God is simply because we aren't willing to spend time, meaningful time, getting to know Him. That kind of yearning and, and soul longing uh, that we see in this psalm may be far from our everyday experience. Making time to, to meditate on who God is and what He's done is so important in living the Christian life. When, when the troubles of our hearts are enlarged, when our, when our minds are, are crowded full of anxieties and, and stresses, we need to focus on what's true, what's life-giving, what's unchanging, and that is God's Word. Now, saying spend more time in your Bible that might just sound like another burden to carry, another thing to add to the list of all the things that you don't have time for. But God knows your situation. He knows the pressures that you face. He knows the struggles that you are going through. He knows the season of life that you're in and how difficult it can be to, to find the time and energy for prayer and Bible study in a meaningful way. And yet, he still invites you to enjoy that intimacy with him. Because he knows that that kind of time is life-giving. It's refreshing. It's energizing. It shifts our perspective from the realm of our troubles to rest in his grace. And that's why he gives us psalms, like Psalm 25, to meditate on. David knew how important it was to cultivate intimacy with God in the face of his troubles. He also knew what it was, what it looked like to focus his mind on God. It's worth noticing that this psalm, when it was written in its original language, was written as an acrostic. It largely follows the pattern of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why does that matter? Well, David was facing all sorts of opposition. We read about it in the psalm. There was all sorts of internal, internal turmoil going on in this psalm. And when that happens, it's very hard to focus our minds and our thoughts. Stress and worry can trap us 
in a cycle of thought that's very hard to break. But the very structure of this poem, it helps to plot a way through his troubles. It helps provide a way for David to think through his situation. It lifts his eyes up from his own circumstances and focuses them on God. What we have in this poem, not only in its content, but also in its very structure, is a poem that helps someone work through times of trouble and distress. It brings order in the midst of chaos. But ultimately, it's what we learn about the kind of God that David worships that provides a remedy in the midst of trouble. So what is it that we learn about God uh, in this psalm that should help us face the various pressures of life? Well, David dwells on the fact that God is the one who directs our paths. He appeals to to the Lord, verse 4, "'Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth.'" and teach me. Now, notice in that verse, the plurals, he wants to know God's ways and his paths. He's, he's appealing to God for guidance and direction, but he's not looking for a silver bullet. He's not expecting some bolt from the blue word from God that will deal with all his problems. He's talking there about the general will of God. He wants to live by God's commands. He wants to discern right from wrong, good from evil. He wants to live in obedience to God because he knows, verse 8, that good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. As David meditates on God's character, he's reminded that he is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness who meets his people in their troubles. I wonder, do you know that? Do you believe that? If you're a Christian, then you have a God who can lift you up when you're cast down. God who can comfort you when you're grieving. A God who can strengthen you when you feel weak. A God who can bring peace in the midst of distress. You have a God who is in control of all things, even the troubles that you face. You have a God who is good, who delivers his people. Verse 20, that's what what David appeals for. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. David knew that the sovereign Lord was the one who could deliver him from shame. The one in whom he could take refuge. The reason that, that we don't have to live in fear, the reason that we don't need to be overwhelmed by life's troubles is because God is a refuge. He's a place of safety. He's a place of security for anyone who trusts in Him. And because of who He is, there is no trouble, no pressure, no stress that is too big for Him. And when we understand that, 
We can stop trying to control things ourselves. We can cast our anxieties on the one who directs our paths, the one whose good purpose will be worked out in our lives. He's the one who is faithful to his people. See, David's troubles weren't just down to the hatred of his opponents. He was obviously facing opposition. But some of his troubles were of his own making. In this psalm, we have a picture of a guy who was full of internal turmoil. Turmoil caused by guilt over past sins. He appeals to God, verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. And again in verse 11, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For all that David was a man after God's own heart, for all that he was used wonderfully by God, he was far from perfect. He was a man who had done some terrible things in his life. And he knew what it was to experience the turmoil that comes with that kind of guilt. He was someone who was only too aware that he was a sinner. You know, many people go through life burdened with guilt, things in their past that that fill them with shame and regret. And here in this psalm, we have a picture of a man whose guilt had brought him low. David knew that he was guilty. He knew he deserved God's judgment. He knew that there was nothing that he could do to right the wrongs that he'd committed. But in the midst of his turmoil, he knew the answer to his anguish. He knew where relief lay. He knew that he could throw himself on the mercy of God. And that's exactly what he does. And he does it repeatedly. Verse 6, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Verse 7, according to your steadfast love, remember me. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. It's a wonderful knowledge that David had. He knew that God is a God of mercy a God of steadfast love, a God who had remained faithful to his people throughout their past. David could look back on a a history of a people full of all sorts of wrongs, adultery, idolatry, deceit, murder, unfaithfulness. And he could see that despite all of that, God hadn't forgotten them. And that is why he could cry out when he himself was guilty of so much wrong. He knew what it was to experience guilt. But he also knew what it was to know God's forgiveness. To have his sin and his guilt blotted out. In another psalm, Psalm 103, he writes these wonderful words. As far as the east is from the west so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The one who begged for his transgressions to be forgiven, he knew what it was to experience that glorious relief of mercy and forgiveness. And the fact that he asks repeatedly shows that he recognized that sinning isn't a one-time thing. And, and God doesn't just forgive 
on one occasion and then refuse to accept our confession after that. God is repeatedly pouring out his mercy on those who come to him. But how can God do that? How can a God who is good and upright, a God who is just, how can he forgive sin? He can't just ignore it. He can't just sweep it under the carpet and pretend that it never happened. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. In verse 14, David gives us a wonderful image, that image that we mentioned at the start of the friendship of the Lord. But how can guilty, sinful people possibly know God as a friend? How can we know God as a friend? Well, this psalm ends not with closure, but with an appeal. David prays, verse 21, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So at the end of the psalm, we're kind of left hanging a bit. After all, if integrity and uprightness are, are meant to preserve us, then what chance do we have of being redeemed, of being rescued? David was well aware of his guilt, so how could he appeal to integrity and uprightness when his sin deserved God's judgment? You know, many people approach God relying on their own integrity, on their uprightness. They think that their good works will earn them uh, favor with God, that they'll be good enough in the end. Uh, for him. But the Bible is clear that God is holy, that his uprightness is sinless perfection. And that's a standard that none of us can possibly meet. So if God requires integrity and uprightness, then what chance do any of us have? God can't ignore sin. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that he has done something about it. The appeal at the end of this psalm, it has been answered by the only one who has lived a life of perfect integrity and uprightness, the only one who has lived a life free from guilt, the, the only one who lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father, and yet in his mercy and in his grace was willing to bear God's judgment for sin. The prophet Isaiah says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. He bore the guilt of anyone who would trust in him so that we might know the friendship of the Lord, so that we might know mercy and forgiveness, not because of what we do, but because of what our Savior, Jesus, has done. For anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, we have the wonderful privilege of knowing that whatever we may have done in our past, we are forgiven. We are free from guilt. We are blameless before God. And we have the sure and certain hope of an eternal future with the one who made us to be his. And one of the many beautiful things about God's grace one of the wonderful things about his mercy and his forgiveness is that even our guilt isn't wasted. Even the things that we are most ashamed of in our lives, the things that we would do anything to take back, even the troubles that are of our own making, they are weaved into God's rich tapestry of grace for our good 
and for his glory. Such is the wonder of his steadfast love, his faithfulness to his people. So, in lonely moments, when the troubles of our heart are enlarged, when our past accuses us and weighs us down, remember the words of Psalm 25. We have a God who directs our paths. We have a God who is faithful to his people. We have a God of mercy and steadfast love who takes our guilt away. A God who in Jesus Christ is a friend to the lonely. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the friendship that we can enjoy with you, a friendship that is closer than any other, a friendship that, that provides a refuge and protection. We thank you, Lord God, that today we do not need to be weighed down with guilt we do not need to be overcome with anxiety, but we can rest in you. We can trust in you. So we pray, Lord God, that by your Spirit, you would take these wonderful truths of your character and, and apply them deep into our hearts, that we might know a peace that passes all understanding, that you might lift our eyes to you. And would you give us a deep desire to seek your face daily, to be reminded again and again of what it means to belong to you, to know you as a friend and as a father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, something that we do regularly here is take time to remember Jesus' death by taking bread and wine together. Uh, bread and wine represent a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples shortly before he died. The bread represents Jesus' broken body and the wine, the blood that he shed. And as we come to this table today, it's a visible reminder to us of God's friendship, of what it is to know a friend like no other, a friend that has gone to the ultimate lengths to, to know us and secure a relationship with us. At that meal, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat and remember me. He also took wine, and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink and remember me. Jesus called all who loved and followed him to share in this meal. And so here at Grace Church Leith, we invite all those who love and follow Jesus and who've been baptized to come and take the bread and wine. If you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. And I just invite you to use this time to reflect on that psalm, uh, to consider uh, what it would mean to, to know God as a friend. Uh, he invites you into a relationship with him today through Jesus Christ. So can I encourage you to receive Jesus as those around you receive the bread and wine?